Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that we will take to heart what your word says to us, that we will not leave your word untouched in our heart, that we will heed the lessons here which truly have eternal consequences. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, now many of you know uh, that uh, I went to Australia when I was really young. Uh, I left when I was 12 years old. And I remember when I first went to boarding school, uh, within a few months, uh, I had seen my first Playboy magazine. Okay, so uh, you can imagine it's a boarding school, lots of boys, lots of uh, testosterone. And uh, a few months later, uh, you know, some other people showed me some other more hardcore new magazines. And then within a year, I had seen uh, what would be very, you know, triple X uh, magazines, and then within a year after that, I probably had seen a triple X movie, and then after that, I even had my own collection of magazines. Now, I also remember this song that I heard before, which says, From little things, big things grow. Now, you probably never heard this song before, because it's from uh, an Australian artist who, uh, even in Australia, he's not very well known. But I always remember this song, From little things, big things grow. And when I look at my own life, uh, I think that's true, and I think that as, especially when we look at this story, we also see that that principle is at stake, that from little things, big things grow. And what is happening here is that when we look at Gideon's life, we see that the seed which was planted in the beginning, or sorry, at the end of his life, actually starts bearing fruit uh, all the way into the next generation. So last week, we looked at the person of Gideon, the judge, and uh, we saw that his life was actually divided into two parts. The first part and the second part. And I think we can characterize the first part as the, as the good part, the positive part. Because God raised up Gideon, and as we saw last week, Gideon was very obedient. He was very humble before God. He was very faithful before God. And God used him to deliver his people. But in the second half, after the victory was won, after Gideon had become very successful, we saw a second half of his life, the other side of Gideon. And that side of Gideon was not so good. He, was, uh, he started to become very self-reliant, very overconfident, and he didn't listen to God, very arrogant. He stopped depending on God. And we saw the little things, the little seeds of his life where we could see this problem, problem starting to come out. So last week, remember how we saw that as he won his victory, he went to the town of, Su- the, the town of Sukkoth. And because they refused to give him bread, they, he took these thorns, and he whipped the people there until all their skin was torn. And he went to the town of Pinel, again another Israelite town. And because they didn't give him bread, he went there and he killed all the men in that town. Okay, little seeds of uh, self-reliance and disobedience before God. But worst of all, right at the very end of last week's passage, we saw that Gideon, after he had won the victory, he told his men to contribute these gold pieces. And then he made this idol. Uh, which he set up in his own hometown, which started to lead the people astray. So as uh, this author, or this pastor, Derek Tidball said, by the very end of last week's, uh, last week's passage, we saw that Gideon had a divided heart. He was divided in terms of his loyalty to God. He was divided in terms of his obedience to God. And this week, I think that uh, we must see this week as a connection and a continuation from last week. We see that there's a continuation and these little seeds begin to grow into big problems. So as was read to us in verse 30 to 31, this is what it says, isn't it? 
Jerob, son of Joash, Jerob uh, Baal, who's actually the nickname, remember this is a nickname for Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. And in verse 30 it says, He had 70 sons of his, whole, of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Now, as we read this passage, uh, for us, if we were Israelites, we would begin to question uh, the, the lifestyle of Gideon or Jerob Baal. Because, initially, right at the very beginning, in, uh, uh, after, straight after he won the victory, remember, he comes back victorious after getting rid of the Midianites, and the Israelites had said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you. No, my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But remember there's a saying which says, your actions speak louder than your words. Correct? And there's another saying, what you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Right? Or what you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And even though at the end of last week's chapter, he says that I will not rule over you, I will not be your king. The way he lives is like a king. He lives like a king. He acts like a king. He behaves like a king. And he has many children and many wives. And this is just like King David and King Solomon. And they as well, when they became kings, in many chapters, uh, many books later, they also had many wives, many children. Because that is the way that the kings in those days lived. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, before they went into the promised land, God had warned the people, do not appoint your king and if you appoint your king, make sure they do not have many wives. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. It says, The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord says to you, you are not to go back that way. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. Okay, so uh, that means in Singapore, we shouldn't have polygamy, right? Because that's the way kings live. Okay, many wise, alright? But here, as we see, because of his actions, we see that he's not really living in a way that he said he wasn't. He's living as a ruler and a king. But it's not enough that he has all these wives, right? Obviously, he's not very happy, right? So he takes a concubine, uh, a mistress, because, you know, it's not enough to have lots of wives. He needs someone else. And uh, he takes his mistress in Shechem. And... Uh, I don't know how many nightstands he had with this concubine, with this slave girl. Okay. But he names his son Abimelech. Now, names mean something. Okay. Especially in the Old Testament. Abimelech means my father is king. So, on one hand, he says, I will not be king of you. But then when he has this child from this concubine, he names the child my father is king. See, very confused and divided person Gideon is at the end of his life. He's divided in terms of whether he should really rule. Therefore, it is not surprising as we read in verse 33, in verse 33 it says, No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal, Berith, is as their God, and did not remember the Lord their God. See, because Gideon was divided, he was divided in terms of his obedience to God. He was divided whether he should rule. It says there very surprisingly, in verse, it's not surprisingly in verse 33, right? No sooner had Gideon died than they returned back to the old ways. And uh, I like what this commentator said. You see, it's almost as if they couldn't wait 
for Gideon to die, and then they went back to their old ways. You know, no sooner, just as soon as they closed the the um, the, the the tomb, they were back to what they were doing before. And I think that this is a testimony to the divided uh, spirit in Gideon, isn't it? That because he was living this way, the people also became very divided in their thinking. And worst of all, it says here that they set up an altar to this god named Baal Berith. Literally, Baal Berith means the Baal of the covenant. Baal of the covenant. Now to us, that doesn't really mean very much. But Yahweh, God, right? When we see Lord God, you know, Lord as in capital letters in the Bible, it means Yahweh. And Yahweh literally means God of the covenant. So to actually set up an altar for Baal of the covenant is to actually take the identity of God and replace it with another God completely. Right? Instead of God of the covenant, replace it with Baal of the covenant. How insulting is that? And that was because of the divided nature of Gideon, because he set up this alternative worship structure, the people were confused already. So no sooner than Gideon had died, they went back to the old way of worshipping a false god. But worse was to come. See, I imagine that when uh, Gideon or Jared Baal uh, went with his concubine in Shechem, maybe he had a one-night stand or a many-night stand, he thought, oh, I'm very lucky, you know. I didn't get caught. My, my, my video didn't turn up on the internet. Right? Uh, um, right I, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I got away with that. I dodged a bullet. You know, there's this movie apparently I saw advertised, you know, called Hall, pa- Hall Pass or something. Apparently, you know, these women give their children, uh, not children, their husbands, okay, some free pass for one week to go and fool around. So people think, oh, you know, you get a whole pass, you get a free pass. But Gideon thinks that he gets a free pass with his concubine. But in reality, there is no free pass in life because the little things grow into big things. Every action has a consequence. And what happens? Because of this sin of sleeping with this concubine, Abimelech comes along. And in Abimelech, we see the seed, the small seed of sin in Gideon's life become this huge, uncontrollable animal. Because we saw that Gideon was a bit of a ruthless person when he was successful. Remember, he whipped those people with the thorns, he killed the men. Well, what is Abimelech like? He's even much more ruthless. He kills 70, or actually not 70, 69 of his brothers on one stone. We saw that Gideon, he moved away from God in making this ephod, this idol. But here, Abimelech, he goes to the temple of Baal and he uses the temple money to fund his own political career. And Gideon, he wasn't sure about whether he really wanted to be king. But we see that Abimelech, he pursues kingship in a totally, totally evil and wicked way. And what does he do? Well, let's have a look at a bigger picture of what he does. Okay, this is why I'm here, so I can use my the light pen or the laser pointer. So, if you look at what Abimelech does, he's very clever. Okay, he's, he's totally pragmatic, a mercenary way of thinking. Okay, how does this work again? Yeah? Okay, good. So this is a Shechem and uh, Abimelech's hometown. And this is Oprah, which is uh, where his 70 brothers live, which is his father's hometown. So he goes from wherever he lives and he goes to Shechem and he says, look, guys, what is better for you? Okay, imagine yourself. Right? What is better for you? 
Is it better that I rule over you? After all, I'm one of your flesh, right? He says that I'm Shechem. Or 70 of the people over there rule over you. See, he's playing the race card, right? He's playing the race card. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's a bit dangerous for me to use this illustration in Singapore, right? But you can imagine, right? You, you know, you, you can imagine him saying, look, is it better for one of your own kind to rule over you? Or 70 of those people over there, far, far away to rule over you? And obviously, it's a very simple answer. It's better for one of us to rule, isn't it? And it's not a theological argument. It is not based on uh, obedience to God. There is no mention of God here. It is all based on skin color. It's all based on race. One of you better than 70 of those people who are not your kind. So then he wins over the citizens and the family and he gets 70 shekels for his political campaign from the temple of Baal. Right? So from the temple of Baal, he takes the money to become king. He kills all his brothers. And Shechem, this place here, I want you to remember, throughout this whole section, there's always these things called the echo of the past. To understand this passage, we must always remember that every time we mention places, it means something. Okay? So, it's like uh, here, Shechem. Okay, Shechem. We think, okay, Shechem. What is, what is Shechem? For the Israelites, Shechem is, like for us Singaporeans, the Padang, or the steps of Parliament House. Okay, whenever we think of the Padang or the steps of Parliament House, we think of a National Day Parade. That was where all these, you know, very big monumental things happened in terms of nationhood. Okay, so Shechem... For the Israelite also means nationhood in a way. Because in Joshua chapter 24, before they enter into the promised land, they make a vow of allegiance to God at Shechem. So in Joshua 24, this is what it says, right? On that day, Joshua made a covenant. Okay, remember the God of the covenant, Yahweh of the covenant? A covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and he set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So Shechem is a very important place. It's got echoes of the past. And Joshua set up this stone as a symbol of what? Obedience. Correct? This stone represents obedience, unity, loyalty to God, obedience to the law, faithfulness to God. But at this very same place, right, Abimelech begins his campaign to kill his 70 brothers on one stone. Can you see the contrast? One stone to recognize the loyalty to God and one stone to kill all of Gideon's children. Uh, and some people also say uh, when it says there that he was murdered on one stone, it was almost like they were sacrificially murdered by human sacrifices to Baal. You know, why is it me- mentioned that they all murdered one stone? But whatever it is, it's a terrible scene, isn't it? Imagine going to someone's house and rounding up 70 brothers and killing them one after another on one stone. A bit like, I don't know, some samurai sword or something. No, take your head off. I mean, it's a terrible picture. And the question is, how could things go so wrong for God's people? How could God's people allow this to happen? Well, it's what we said in the beginning. From little things, big things grow. From the little seeds of sin 
in Gideon's life, it leads to this huge monster of sin in Abimelech. And I think that that's why if you keep reading, as, uh, as uh, Lena led to, read to us that passage, you notice Gideon is never called Gideon. What is he always called? By his nickname, Jerob Baal. Now you must ask yourself, why does he keep being called Jerob Baal? Okay, so, uh, you know, people say, oh, you know, uh, Pastor Andrew Ong is coming to preach to us today. Okay, when I was younger, I had a nickname. My nickname was CJ. Okay, so imagine say, oh, Pastor CJ is going to speak to us today. You think, oh, that's a bit strange, right? Why do you mention uh, someone's nickname instead of his official name? Why not Gideon? See, Jerob Baal as a nickname meant fighting against Baal, anti-Baal, uh, you know, opposition against Baal. So Gideon represents opposition to Baal. But every time his name is mentioned, opposition to Baal, we see the reality is different. That his next generation actually fight for Baal, with Baal, together with Baal. And it shows how from the little sin in, in Gideon's life, it has led all the way to the opposite of what his name, his nickname really means. And I think that it's so important for us to see this. Like the pastor said, this is not a parable, okay? Uh, a parable is a made-up story. This is a true story. And I think that one application for us is, we must see the reality of how when you tolerate sin in your life, it can grow into a big thing. Are there any little sins that you tolerate in your life? Any little seeds which are growing in your heart? Well, I want you to see the reality of where it could lead up to. The death of 70 brothers. Isn't it? Small, all these small little sins become a very big thing. If you ever get a chance, you should see this movie called... Uh, oh, I can't remember the name. Now. A, simple, the simple, uh, a Simple Lie or something. It's called A Simple Lie. I have to check it out later. But in this movie, one lie leads to a bigger lie, leads to a bigger lie, until one brother kills another brother. Right? It's, it's, it's that sort of idea. One little sin can keep building upon itself till it grows to a big thing. So anyway, we come to the next part of the story. And Abimelech and his men have returned in triumph back to Shechem. Okay, back to the city. And there they are celebrating. Okay, they are drinking their tiger beer. Uh, they're eating their KFC and their McDonald's and watching the EPL on the big screen. And all of a sudden, right, they hear this voice shouting from the mountain. Now again, this is very important, echoes of the past. Okay? So next slide here. So Shechem is here, this is the city. And even today, if you go to uh, Israel, uh, there are these hills, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which overlook uh, the city. Okay? They're, they're quite close, apparently. There's even a a little ledge, which is called Jotham's Peak, where, where apparently Jotham shouted from. And these uh, little hills, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, again, have a historical value in Israel's life. Because in the past, God had said that uh, they would, from these mountaintops, on one mountaintop in Mount Ebal, all the curses of God would be read for those who broke the law. And from Mount Gerizim, which is the other mountaintop, okay, all the blessings of God would be read. Okay, so the fact that Jotham, the youngest son who escaped, shouts from the mountaintop, these mountaintops, again for the Israelites, says, look, this is not just Jotham 
talking, right? Because he's very sad and 69 of his brothers died. But this is God talking through Jotham. So when we, when we listen to Jotham shouting from Mount Gerizim, it's almost as if someone has gone to the steps of Parliament House and he's saying something. It means something. Now, as we look at this story, the, the, this parable of the trees, we might think, ah, oh, yeah, it's such a simple story. Uh, what does it mean? Like? You know, people just skip through it. Right? Who knows? A big tree, vine tree, all trees are all the same, right? But it actually means something. I like what this uh, pastor Simon Manchester said. It's like a political cartoon. Okay, so political cartoons uh, speak a thousand words, right? You just look at the cartoon, you don't need to read what the thing is saying, text saying. So let me give you some examples. So here, next slide, we have a few political cartoons for Barack Obama. Okay? So uh, this is Barack Obama. And, uh, and this is a political ca- cartoon saying, you know, Barack Obama. When you look at this cartoon, what is it saying? It's saying that Barack Obama is like a war monger, right? He wants to go to war. Okay? So after Afghanistan, Pakistan is next. So you don't need to write a lot of text. You just see the picture and you understand what the, the, the cartoon writer or the cartoon drawer is trying to say. Okay, so next slide. So again, Barack Obama, okay, he's trying to say that he's got all these problems, right? The economy, you know, climate change, Middle East, and, and you know, he's fighting all these fires, okay? So you don't need to have many words when you see a cartoon. And that's what the parable really is. The parable says a lot, but you have to read and understand what it's saying. So Jotham is here, he's shouting. He's not a very old person, right? He's not a wise old prophet. He's much younger than me. He's probably as young as our youth group. Okay, imagine... Um, not Barack Obama. Gideon had uh, seventy children, okay, and he served for he ruled for forty years. So we presume that uh, I don't know he must be very very fertile. But you can imagine that his oldest child cannot be very young after having seventy children in forty years. So imagine this young teenager and he's shouting this story. And he says, "Look, there are these three trees who are asked to be king, and the first tree is the olive tree." Okay, and this is the olive tree, and the olive uh, has this fruit, and you know, if you ever drink olives, uh, drink martinis or whatever, you know, you have olives in it, but you know, if you, if you drink, uh, if you use olive oil, you know, you dip bread into it, or you have salad, whatever, it, it is a very valuable oil in the Middle East. And it says that in this passage, actually, we just think of olive oil as food, but actually in the Middle East, uh, in those days, olive oil was used, it says that, to honor people. To honor people. And it's true because Jesus Christ, right, Christ literally means the anointed one. Right? And they use olive oil to anoint people who become king. So oil is very important in the Middle East and it's used to anoint people who are very powerful, to, to actually symbolize that they now come into power. So he says, look, they asked the olive tree, and the olive tree said, look, I've got a very important role to fill. My oil is used to. Uh, honor people, well, I can't be king. So he said, okay, let's go to the fig tree. Okay, next picture. Okay, this is a fig tree. I, I don't know, I don't really eat figs, but I presume that they're very nice and sweet because the Bible says so, but I think they are in the Middle East. So they, I went to the internet and these are the fruit that they have. Okay, this is the fruit that they have. And again, the fig tree says, look, my fruit is so sweet and it's so good. Why should I give this up to become king? So, the fig tree says, okay, I won't be king. Then the next one is the vine. So this is the vine. I'm sure for those of you who go to your wine trips in uh, Hunter Valley or Margaret River or whatever, you've seen all these things. Right? I don't think they grow in Singapore. But these are the grapes. And these are the, this is the, 
the vine tree. And, he, and, the, and the vine says, look, why should, I, why should I become king when my grapes bring such good cheer to people? They become really happy when they, you know, when they drink my fermented drink. So in the end, uh, the trees, it is said, turn to the bramble or the thorn bush. But the problem is, the bramble or the thorn bush has no fruit. All it has is thorns. See all these thorns? And if you look at verse 15, the thorn bush says to the tree, if you really want to anoint me, again the, name, the word anoint, the idea of using oil to anoint people, king, anoint me king over you in verse 15, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let the fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the ciders of Lebanon. But you see, even then, the thorn bush cannot do what it promises to do. See, we're not familiar. Lah. You know, Singapore, we've got thorn bush. But you see, the thorn bush is like this. Next slide. This is the thorn bush. The thorn bush only grows on the ground. It's like a weed. So the thorn bush cannot give you shade. So you, know, you can sit under the shade of the tree. It can make you very cool. It can give you protection from the rain. But what good is a tree, or not tree, it's not a tree, what good is a plant which grows on the ground which only has thorns? No good. Because next slide, because it can only cut you. So that's the picture, isn't it? The picture is, look, what good is the, the, the thorn bush or the bramble? You choose this fella, Abimelech, what good is he? He cannot give you shade. And worst of all, he, is, he, can, he can cut you. So he cannot give you shade. But then the thorn bush says, look, if you do not make me king, I will bring fire on you. I'll bring fire on you. And again, we sort of ask ourselves the question, well, why, why, why fire? Where got fire come out of tree? Okay, next slide. Now, I went to the internet again, and apparently it says on the internet that the brambles or thorn bush are very sensitive to fire. And top killing is usually virtually complete. I, I presume what that means is that once you set fire to these thorn bushes, they burn very easily. They're very sensitive to fire. And once you set them on fire, they will, they will burn very freely and very easily. Because, you know, if you ever set fire, it's like charcoal. You know, charcoal takes a long time to burn. But some plants burn very quickly and very completely. And that's what a thorn bush is. So what this, this cartoon, this political cartoon is saying is that Abimelech is not only useless, but he is destructive. And he will destroy. He will destroy as king. But then the first part of this story is all about the parable. But the second part is a series of questions. And the questions actually put the challenge to the people. And it says here, Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jared Baal and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave, go king over the citizens of Shechem, because he's your brother. If then, if, if then you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Jerob Baal and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, then let fire come out of Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Melo. And let the fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Melo, and consume Abimelech. So here, the question is that it's not just the responsibility of Abimelech 
that he has been made king. But who, whose responsibility, whose door does it land on? It's the citizen's fault. And the words that he uses is very, very important again. The heart of the question. It's repeated twice. In verse 16 and in verse 19. The words there in NIV says, If you have acted honorably and in good faith. In other translations it says, With truth and integrity. Uh, the ESV says, Truly and sincerely. If you've acted truly and sincerely, then you'll be blessed, but if not, you'll be cursed. And it's not just whether they've acted truly and uh, honorably and faithfully to the family of Gideon. Because we know they haven't. They've revolted against the family, they murdered his son, they made Abimelech king. So they haven't acted honorably, truly, faithfully towards Jared Baal. But more than that, I think there's an echo of the past again. Okay, this echo of the past thing. Because the words here, truth and integrity, sincerity and faithfulness, they are the same words which God used and he, when he told them that this is the way that they must act towards God. See again, coming back to the Shechem place in Joshua 24, look at what it says there. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders and leaders and judges and officials of Israel and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants, so on and so forth. And it says there in verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Now the NIV doesn't capture it the same way. Right? The words are all there. The same words are there. Serve Him with sincerity and truth. Or in ESV, sincerity and faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. See, just like Singaporeans, whenever I say to you, as one united people, regardless of race, language, and religion, what do you think of? Nothing. The pledge, right? Okay? That's what, I mean, I, I, at least when I was in school, we say every morning, so you can't forget it. But it's the same thing. These words, truth and sincerity, honor, honor and good faith, these all should remind God's people that not just are they being unfaithful to God or to Jared Baal, but also the God who sent Jared Baal, which is God himself. So here, when we look at this passage, when he says that the fire will come out of Abimelech to destroy you, and the fire will come out of the people of Shechem to destroy Abimelech. It's not just one young kid who is very upset, but it's actually God proclaiming his judgment on what they have done to his, his servant. Now, as we look at this uh, passage, I think there are a few applications that uh, come to mind and that other people have touched on. One is that it's so important to choose the right leader. Now, it's so important to choose the right leader. Um, here we're talking about God's people as a nation, but as a church, I can think of it, that it's important to pick the right leader. You don't want to pick a thorn bush or a bramble as a leader. Either of a youth group, of a children's church, of Bible study group, of elder, deacon. You know, in everything that we do, we must always pick the person who is not a thorn bush, who is, in God's eyes, faithful and obedient. Because here, Abimelech asks the question, actually there's so much you can go to this passage, but I don't have time. He says to you, he says to the people of Shechem, what is good for you? Isn't that what he says to you? 
Verse 2, chapter 9. What is better for you? What is good for you? And the people pick for selfish reasons. But we must always think what is good is what is good in God's eyes. What is good before God? Not what is good selfishly. And I think the second application, if it's not just about picking leaders, is on a more personal scale, on a more uh, relations, relationship scale. Because the key problem here is that God's people were not dealing with His representative with honour, with sincerity, with truthfulness, and in good faith. If I were to ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, in your relationship with God, do you relate to God with sincerity, truthfulness, and good faith and honour? What, what number would you use? Are you, you know, are you really treating Him in integrity and sincerity and good faith? Or do you know, are you sort of being divided in your heart, in your mind? Even the way you treat other people, do you treat them in that way too, with honour, sincerity, in good faith, sincerity, and truthfulness? Or, you know, again, are we like the people of Shechem? Because that is the problem of people of Shechem. They only look to their own interests and they are willing to sacrifice and be ungodly and unholy in the way that they live. Now, the story then moves to the last part. And the last part is really God delivering His judgment. And I'm going to compress the story to you because I don't think there's any point in going through all the details. But it's a, it's a very simple story. Uh, three years later, God sends an evil spirit. And because of this evil spirit, Abimelech and Shechem, they don't get along anymore. They're not friends anymore. They fall out with one another. And Shechem turns to another man, another bad man, another gangster, another gang leader. His name is Gail. Okay? And it's really interesting because Gale, in many ways, is exactly like Abimelech in the way that he does things. See, look what it says here in verse 28. He said, Then Gale, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son and isn't Zebul his deputy? Serve the man of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? See, remember the argument that Abimelech said when he first came to Shechem? Would you want, which is better for you? You want me, right, one of your own people, or do you want 70 of those people over there? Right, remember, he pulled the race card. Remember, I'm your race. And here, Gale does the same thing. He says, look, who is Abimelech? Isn't his father not from here? He's only half-breed. He's only half, you know, he's like a bastard like that. But, but me, I'm really from here. I'm the son of Hamor, who came all the way. He was the original settler in Shechem. So, as we, uh, as we read, uh, Abimelech, it's like two gang fights. Lah. Abimelech's gang fights with Gael's gang, and Abimelech's gang destroys Gael's gang. And I think that this is so important for us to understand because ultimately this leads to the fulfillment of God's promise through Jotham. See, look at verse 46. On hearing this, the citizens of the tower of Shechem went into the ta- stronghold of the temple of El Baruch. Think of it as a, the bomb shelter in HDB flat, okay? When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, all, he and all his men went up to Mount Zelmon. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut the branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the, throng, uh, the stronghold and set it on fire, 
over the people inside. So all the people in the Tower of Shechem, uh, about a thousand men and women also died. So literally, uh, God fulfills what he said he was going to do. Fire came out of Abimelech to destroy the people of Shechem. But it doesn't end there. Uh, for whatever reason, we're not told why, Abimelech now goes and attacks another city called Tebez. No reason is given. Maybe it's just that you know he got a bit of bloodlust worked up. Now this is the sort of person that Abimelech is. He's very violent. Remember, he's just like a gangland leader. And he sees that now I've got this army, we're all, we're all really getting to it, let's go and attack somewhere else. So he goes to attack this Tebez. And uh, as we come to the end of the story, we're sort of wondering, how is Abimelech going to be consumed by fire? And it's a very funny story, isn't it? Because he goes to the second town, he thinks, okay, it worked the first time, I set fire to the tower, I'm going to do it again. So this time, when he goes to light the fire, what happens? Well, it's very funny, right? Remember, we, we said that the, the writer of Judges has a, has a good sense of humor. Uh, like this uh, pastor, Simon Manchester, said, you know, a woman with big biceps got him. Okay? Uh, now, if you think of it, it's very, very strange that uh, this actually happened. So you look at this slide. This is what a millstone looks like. Uh, in those days, they don't have blender. Uh, they don't have uh, manufactured wheat. You can't go to NTUC. So what you do is you get the, the, the wheat grains and then you get these heavy stones, you keep rubbing, rubbing each other until they become like powder. Okay, so you can imagine you need a, a big stone sitting on another big stone in order to grind the, 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 the wheat. So you can sort of imagine why would a woman carry a millstone up into the tower? Okay, and, and some people think it's a very funny story in, in a way, right? Because it seems so unlikely that Abimelech would die just as he's going to light the fire, boom! The stone hits his head. Okay? And this is what this person said. He said, uh, uh, Abimelech's pragmatism told him that what worked at Shechem would surely work at Tebez. But as he leaned over to ignite the fire, he discovered too late that a certain woman had a crush on him. Okay? <laughs> and uh, they said, one can just imagine a husband pan panting beside his wife as they run up the stairs to refuge in the Tebez tower, exasperated that his wife insists on lugging an upper millstone along. Doubtless she responded, my dear, you never know when you need a good millstone. Right. So it's the same thing, isn't it? That it's so strange that this happens. And I think the way it happens shows once again, as we've seen over and over in the book of Judges, that God will use His sovereignty to bring about His will. Remember, Ehud with his strange left-handed sword, Shamgar with his goat stick. Uh, and this, this passage almost is, is very similar to the wife killing Sisera with a tenpeg. Here we have a woman who throws a millstone. Imagine it must have been a pretty good shot, right? throwing it from a tower up there, trying to hit this guy's head, and hit him on the head. But like as this pastor said, as it says in the New Testament, when Jesus says, not a hair falls from your head without God knowing about it, well, not a millstone will hit your head without God knowing about it. Right? And it's true. It's all about God's judgment. As we look at this passage, it's all about consequences, and about judgment. See, if you think of the book of Judges, there's always been a cycle. Israel sins, they cry out to God, God raises a judge, the judge frees the people, there is peace. But here, there is a strange interruption in the story. The people sin, Gideon dies, the people sin, we expect 
enemy to be raised and God to send a judge, but it doesn't happen. We are, we are left with this story of Abimelech. And Abimelech only rules for three years. And the period of judges is hundreds of years. Why does the writer bother to tell us about Abimelech and his three years? I think that, I agree with most commentators, that is to focus that God is the judge. That when you sin, that when because people sin, there will be consequences. And in this story, sin and judgment happen very fast. Three years. And there is a short-term justice that God hands you over into their sin. So Shechem wants to play politics and they kill the 70 people. And Abimelech is a very evil, consuming, destructive person. So God says, okay, you both can kill each other. In the New Testament, it's got the same idea, isn't it? So in Romans chapter 1, there's a short-term, uh, there's this short-term justice idea, isn't it? In Romans chapter 1, it says, Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversions. And in Romans chapter 1, there's the idea where God gives people over to their sins and they suffer from their sins itself. And I think that's true. You want to be an alcoholic? You'll suffer. You want to uh, cheat on your wife? Your marital breakdown. You want to uh, be a violent person? Proverbs is very clear. You'll meet another violent person and have a gang fight in Clark Key and you'll, you, you might die. But here, in a sense, it reminds us of God's character as well. That God will always judge. So, again, in the New Testament, I think this is more the norm for us as a New Testament Christian that we don't expect this short-term justice, but we expect all things to be judged in the end. So, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, But do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. See, the same idea, isn't it? Because judgment is coming, how must you live? You must live uh, holy lives, godly lives. You must be like in the Old Testament, you must live honorably and sincerely with good faith before God. In conclusion, uh, there was this missionary and he tells a story of how he was living in the jungle in uh, Africa somewhere and in the village where he was in, they uh, adopt one of the families. They found this uh, baby leopard and they thought it was very cute. So uh, this family is a tribal family. They brought this baby leopard into the household and uh, they tried to domesticate it. They tried to rear this baby leopard. But the other villagers said, no, you cannot, you cannot, you know, it's very dangerous because when the leopard grows bigger, you, you cannot tame it anymore. It will be out of control. It's not like a dog or a cat. But the, the, this family in the village refused to listen. And they kept the leopard until it got bigger and older and older. Bigger and, bigger. and finally, apparently, it, it came true. This is a true story. The leopard attacked the family and killed a few of them and and that ran away. I think that's, a, that's like this story. Because the story begins with Gideon. With the little things. And the little things grow bigger and bigger. Until it, it just makes the whole of this region burst into flames. The little things grow into big things. The little seed of sin grows into this big thing. And in the end, judgment comes. And I think that for us, that's a big lesson. That God 
will always judge at the very end. Maybe a short time, maybe a very long time, but God's character is one of judgment. He will bring judgment. He controls everything. He owns everything. He, he is the judge. So how should we then live? Well, I think we should really behave in good faith, in sincerity and truth before God. If there are little things in your life, little sins, little seeds of sin in your life, then I think we should aim to, 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 to really cut it off because these little things grow into bigger and bigger things and then they will soon grow and engulf and destroy us. So let us truly remember that there are consequences, there is judgment for sin. And let us truly live before God in holiness and godliness, in sincerity, in good faith and honour. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we live before you, help us to see and learn from this lesson that we cannot tolerate the little sins in our life. We cannot turn a blind eye to them. We cannot feel that we are in control over these things because maybe for us, maybe even the next generation will pay for it. That these sins will grow bigger and bigger and that ultimately they will come and consume and destroy us based on the small decisions that we've made. Help us to see that you are God who judges, that there are consequences for our actions. But at the same time, you have sent us Jesus to forgive us for our sins. So help us to hold firmly to Jesus, to deal honourably, to deal with integrity, with sincerity and in good faith with Him. To never hide things or to be double-minded or, or to be two-faced before Him. But to always be godly and holy and loyal to Him in everything that we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.